The Al Conservador Radio Show is sponsored by George Rodriguez on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Time for the El Conservador Radio Show with George Rodriguez. George is a constitutional conservative who loves to expose fake news and liberals. Be a part of the show. Call 210-308-8867. And now, El Conservador, George Rodriguez. Howdy, 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 my friends. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer, on this uh, beautiful Saturday, uh, February 8th. 2020. Actually, as we speak, my friends, I am uh, in uh, Atlanta at a uh, presentation uh, with uh, a good friend of mine, D.A. King. We have a panel discussion going on as we speak in Atlanta uh, regarding the issue of uh, illegal immigration and the impact it's uh, having on the state of Georgia. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, the state of Georgia has more illegal aliens as well as more Latinos, I believe, but I know that it's supposedly more illegal aliens than the state of Arizona. Great gravitational pull for it because of economics and because uh, uh, it apparently is very easy for uh, illegal aliens to hide in plain sight. Uh, they've been gravitating to it to the uh, Georgia to the state of Georgia for some time, and uh, so um, uh, that's where I am at right now. This is a pre-recorded program. I uh, want to give a big shout-out to all my friends uh, over at the Prager Group. Uh, saw them this past uh, week, as well as the folks with the, um, with the uh, Patriot Group uh, here in San Antonio. Also saw them over the weekend or, or during the week. Uh, you know, these, uh, these, are, these are grassroots organizations, grassroots gatherings of folks uh, who are uh, really, really picking up the, the, the gauntlet, picking up the, uh, taking up the battle to um, do something this week, this, this coming uh, election year, and get people out to vote. Because, my friends, you know, w- one of the biggest problems that we've got is we've got a lot of folks who talk a good game, but they never go vote. They never go vote. And this is, uh, you know, this is, to me, uh, unforgivable. I mean, that you gripe on one, uh, in one breath, and then you don't do anything about it by going out to vote. Um, Got to remember, my friends, that the defense of freedom and liberty, it starts in your backyard. The defense of freedom and liberty starts in your backyard. It starts at your precinct. It starts with your vote. That's how the Constitution, that's the, how the political system was established, so that people would be represented and people would vote, people would participate. Unfortunately, too many of us have advocated that, uh, that role, and we let lobbyists we let uh, folks with big bunny who can buy politicians. We let them do the um, uh, the catering. We let them do the uh, the uh, running of the show. And and, and, in, and you know we are the ones, the people, the grassroots folks. Uh, it should be a citizenship effort. It should be a a a, an, a venture in citizenship and civics that uh, you get out there and, and, and vote. I, I, give, I always take my hat off to, uh, to grassroots organizations who are involved in that. Okay, let me tell you real quick. Let me tell you real quick about our show. Our first guest is going to be, Mr., uh, is going to be Sheriff Brad Coe from Kinney County. Brad Coe is uh, working his head off. Kinney County butts right up against the border in the Del Rio uh, Brackettville area, and they have their hands full, my friends, with uh, the cartels and with illegal immigration and, uh, you know, with, uh, with illegal aliens trespassing and breaking and entering and all sorts of other things. I mean, everything from, from uh, serious, serious crime to uh, the mundane. But it impacts because there is such a traffic going on. So we're going to talk to him. We were also going to hear from um, Mr. Lou Alosky, who is with the uh, Immigration Reform Law Institute in Washington, D.C. Lou um, is one of our... Uh, regular guests. And Lou's going to be chatting with us about uh, some changes to immigration law that, uh, in my opinion, uh, the Trump administration is really should be really applauded for uh, related to um, uh, to the issue of uh, people being on welfare. Uh, we also have Mr. Matt O'Brien, who's also t- going to be talking to us from Washington, D.C. Matt is with the Federation for Immigration Reform, FAIR. And he's also going to be giving us an update of some changes uh, to immigration policies that, uh, in my opinion, are going to go a long way to helping us with the, um, to address the, uh, the problems of illegal immigration. Finally, we've got Mr. Sal Martinez, who is a former DEA agent. He lives here in Floresville, Texas, and he's going to be talking about the, car- the impact of the cartels, the impact that the cartels are having uh, on, uh, on law enforcement, both on our side, as well as the problems that they create on, on the other side of the border. So, folks, 
uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Call your friends. Tell them to, to uh, tune in. And uh, we're going to go to our first interview, to our first guest, uh, Sheriff Brad Coe from Kenny County. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer. Once again, my friends, howdy, howdy, howdy. George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer, here in San Antonio, in the heart of South Texas. And uh, we've got uh, one of our good friends, our uh, Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Coe from, uh, Brad Coe from Kenny County, which is right on the border. I wanted to reach out to him. Uh, I was at an event recently where he spoke, and I wanted to uh, to reach out to uh, the sheriff and ask him what kind of uh, what kind of, of problems he sees uh, being on the on, on the border with Mexico. What kind of problems does he see with illegal immigration, whether it's it's crimes or or just simple misdemeanors or what, what, whatever whatever is he seeing? Sheriff, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking time to be with us. Um, Thank you, George, for letting me be on your show. Oh, well, can you tell us uh, what kind of what kind of problems do you see uh, as a sheriff? What kind of problems do you see with law enforcement uh, there on the border? Well, normally, what we see, of course, last year it was a bit of an anomaly for us, but normally we see the the trespassing, the the traffic of illegal aliens crossing fences, tearing up fences, livestock getting out on the on the highway or getting into the wrong pasture, and there's the normal burglaries to hunting camps that's always been a given uh over the past year 18 months we have seen a dramatic increase in amen smuggling activity in our county the way kenny county sits is anything that leaves del rio that wants to go towards san antonio has to come through kenny county with the majority of illegal alien traffic trying to make it to the interior of the united states through san antonio houston dallas a lot of it comes through here uh last year alone just the four deputies I have that work the interdiction unit, uh, we apprehended 61 alien smuggling cases, or alien smugglers, I should say. Uh, This has led to high-speed pursuits. Uh, We've had a couple of wrecks. Fortunately, we haven't had any deputies injured. We did have an illegal alien killed last year in a rollover because of a pursuit, because the kid driving the vehicle was fresh out of high school and didn't really know what he was doing and ended up rolling the vehicle. Uh, One was killed. Uh, several were severely injured, talking broken necks, broken backs. One young lady ended up losing her left arm, had to have it amputated. Uh, and we're starting to see more and more gang affiliations here in Kenny County with alien smuggling. Let me ask you this, because you're raising two, two very interesting uh, issues. First of all, uh, you are a small rural county. I mean, you don't have... Uh, anywhere near the manpower, of course, that that somebody that that a county like Harris County in Houston or Bear County in San Antonio would have, right? That's correct. Uh, Kenny County is almost fourteen hundred square miles, and we are the twenty seventh largest in the state. Well, uh, as far as as far as the uh, area goes, wise, we got uh, thirty five hundred people. So population wise, we're very small, but area wise, we're very big. We've got three major highways running through here going east, and another six that lead directly away from the border. And I have four full-time deputies to try to control all this. Wow, that's, that's, that's got to be tough. I'm down to six uh, part-time deputies. So we've got our hands full. Wow. Plus, handling the everyday stuff, the, the, the missing dogs, uh, somebody stepped somebody back into my car, somebody stole something from the grocery store. Your typical everyday, uh, I should say, crime, on top of all this stuff, other stuff we're seeing. The other question, that, the, the other question I have, you, you raised the, the issue of uh, how young a lot of a lot uh, a lot of the smugglers are now turning to young people to uh, to to drive their cars. Yes, um, we're some of these kids that we've that we've caught were 17, 18 years old, and in the debriefs with them, how they're going to be paid a thousand to two thousand dollars per alien. But when you're 17, 18 years old, somebody's offering you six, seven thousand dollars. That's that's a big chunk of money, and of course, they always give them the line, well, we've been doing this before. Nobody, my guys haven't been caught. They're caught, and uh, they're getting felony convictions on them. Wow. So, so the fact that they, are, uh, that they are minors doesn't prevent them from, from, from getting a fel- fel- felony conviction still, right? No, not at all. What, what, about, um, what about the increase in just the, in just the traffic? Um, we've, been, we've, been ta- we've been hearing that um, 
that uh, because of Trump's policies, there's been a lessening of, uh, of a lot of uh, uh, crossing, border crossing of illegal aliens. Are you seeing that, or are you just seeing them going through another route? I would say I'm going another route. They're still coming across in, in great numbers, so they're just going through another route. Well, uh, and, and to risk being politically incorrect, uh, right now everybody's focused on the impeachment trials, so immigration is taking not the back seat, but the back, back, back seat. Yeah, that's true. That's very, very true. Uh, so, so what would you, what would your your recommendations as far if you had a magic wand, what would your recommendations be uh, to uh, to stem the the problem in your area? Uh, like I like I said for the past you know, thirty some odd years, uh, a lot of it comes down to actual boots on the ground, the people that can get out there and get between the ports of entry uh, and know the lay of the land, know which routes that are most commonly used, and spend more time. Uh, at the actual border, but because of the prosecute, because of the crossings and the processing, a lot of that has been removed from the from the border to get the the uh, paperwork done. And you do have, I mean, uh, there are border patrol agents that you uh, that you work with as well. But again, because you're got you have such a large area to cover, uh, all of you are kind of strapped for for uh, uh, for manpower, right? Right. You know, uh, of course, being being the sheriff as a Texas peace officer, my first duty is to the captain, the citizens of Ken County. And this immigration issue is kind of just taking a, a back seat to, to everything else I do. But that's what we're seeing the most of right now. Gotcha, Sheriff. Uh, anything else that you'd like to share with us before we go? Uh, not not at this time. Uh, I know our border patrol agent and and my deputies work very well hand in hand together. Uh, couldn't ask for a better group of guys, and more uh, places here at the Brightville Station are, are truly some of the best. Excellent. We're, we've been talking with uh, Sheriff Brad Coe from uh, Kenny County, uh, Texas. Thank you very t- for your time, uh, Sheriff, and uh, we've got to get you back on again sometime soon. Thank you, sir. Y'all take care. Hello, El Conservador listeners. If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez, El Conservador, and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you are interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. All right, folks, once again, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you from San Antonio, deep in the heart of South Texas. And we've got uh, Mr. Matt O'Brien from FAIR, the uh, Federation for, of, of American Immigration Reform, or for American Immigration Reform, should I say. And I wanted to uh, reach out to Matt to get him to talk to us about a press release they just did regarding the cost to small communities, to small states, rather, the uh, t- to taxpayers, the cost to taxpayers uh, of illegal immigration, uh, this is some. This is a topic that's always very, very hot for everybody. But uh, Matt, welcome to the show. Uh, tell us about this press release and the research that you guys found. Sure. So we took a look at the uh, ten states with the lowest immigrant populations, which are New Hampshire, Mississippi, Alaska, Maine, North Dakota, West Virginia, South Dakota, Vermont, Montana, and Wyoming. And those are the 10 states with the smallest number of immigrants, both legal and illegal. And we wanted to see what kind of impact that immigration was having on those states because they're not places that people think of um, immigration being a problem. We, we tend to think of like Texas, California, New York, Florida as having problems stemming from mass migration, but we don't tend to think about these states. And what we found was pretty surprising. So we found that there are about 415,000 foreign-born 
uh, residents in these 10 states, and about 88,000 of those, that's roughly a quarter, are illegal aliens. And those illegal aliens are costing taxpayers in those states between 4000 and 6500 annually. So if you take a look at that in a place like New Hampshire, that's the cost of a semester of tuition at a public university in one of those states. But that's money that taxpayers are being forced to spend on benefits and infrastructure and those types of things for illegal aliens, people that have no right to be here at all. Now, that figure that you quoted, uh, 6,500, uh, that's per illegal alien, right? That is not the, the total amount uh, that no, the state... That's, that's per illegal alien, so you have to multiply that 415,000 times, which comes out to a cost of about $454 million. Actually, let me correct that. So, collectively, the total of those illegal aliens and U.S.-born children cost the taxpayers about $454 million because you have to take into account if the parents weren't here illegally and they have children, those children under the current interpretation of the law may be U.S. citizens, but those children are costing money to be educated in the schools and things of that nature, and they wouldn't be here but for the fact that their parents entered the country illegally. So that's a whopping $454 million. Um, but if you, you multiply that 6,500 number by 415,000, then you get an idea of what just the illegal aliens, before you even add in their kids, is costing you. Now, let me drill down a little bit, uh, because having lived in the state of West Virginia, I know that West Virginia uh, taxpayers are not uh, you know, at the top of the income level for the nation. Uh, West Virginia is one of the poorer states uh, in the nation. And uh, for them to be spend, spending this much money uh, on illegal aliens when it could be spent on citizens uh, is mind-boggling to me. Uh, it is. It's a crime. I mean, these are people who are in a state where, for various political reasons, the major industries have been under attack. Uh, this is a place that, in a lot of cases, does not have access to the best educational resources. And what the government is doing is by its policies, or sometimes directly by resettling refugees and asylees, bringing people into these struggling communities who are not U.S. citizens. And what you have to take into account is there are illegal aliens that are going to these places beyond the control of the government, but our immigration policies are so loose that we have massive numbers. There's about a million people a year that come here lawfully with a visa, uh, many of them authorized to work, uh, many of them green card holders, and a lot of those people are settling in these communities because the cost of living is inexpensive. And when those people are willing to take a lower salary, say they're H-1B workers from India or Pakistan, their primary interest is in being here in the United States. So very frequently they will settle for lower salary until such time as they can find an employer who will sponsor them for a green card. Now, People listening may be thinking, well, that's probably not that big a deal in West Virginia. But the fact is the West Virginia state government has been spending a fortune trying to build a new tech economy in the state. And they've been trying to attract employers like Google and Amazon and, and all of these different kinds of companies. Rather than having a fair chance to compete for those jobs, what's happening is those employers come into town and they're looking for tech employees, and suddenly the market is flooded with recent immigrants with a tech background, and it never gives the local U.S. citizens a chance to get a leg up and start to grab these jobs and move their way up the economic ladder. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we can see that. I mean, that's been happening in, in uh, I mean, my grandparents used to complain about job competition in, in Laredo back in the, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it, it's just moved to a different level uh, in today's tech, high-tech world. Well, it happens at both ends of the economy, too. If you look at North Dakota right now, it has an oil boom going on. Um, that oil boom is giving people an opportunity to get into entry-level jobs that pay well, and then it carry training for this very profitable skill set to work in the oil and gas industry. Uh, at the other end, you have tech workers that are coming in to service the oil companies to do IT and accounting and all of these kind of things. And you have the locals in a place that's had a depressed economy until they, the oil boom hit and a lack of employment opportunities. The locals are now forced to compete with immigrants in these places. So this is something that, 
you know, Silicon Valley in, in California, yeah, it's a big problem, but it's also something surprisingly that happens in places like New Hampshire that is building a service sector economy, North Dakota that's building a, a, a tech as well as a blue-collar economy, and places like West Virginia that are sort of trying to reboot their economy. Now, uh, given, given the policies and the, uh, the uh, actions that the Trump administration is starting to take, besides the issue of besides them trying to uh, secure the border in general, um, what do you think uh, is the future of this uh, situation? Do you think it will continue to impact on these smaller states, on these uh, less immigrant states, or do you think that, um, that uh, there may be some light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I think if the Trump administration is able to implement the measures that it has been standing behind, there is light at the tunnel. And the most key of those would be implementing the E-Verify employment verification system, which lets employers determine whether somebody is authorized to work in the United States. But in order for that system, which is free and online, to work effectively, the federal government has to mandate that and then prosecute people who don't comply with it because as it is right now, the work authorization requirements that, that as far as employers verifying that people have permission to work are so ridiculously small and unobtrusive that they, they really don't do anything to protect American employees. Um, the other thing that the Trump administration has been behind, which I think is, is very important, is a skills-based, points-based immigration system. And what that does is it allows us to pick the sectors of the economy that we want to bring people here for to help build the economy rather than injecting people who are going to compete with American workers for a limited pool of jobs. The fact is, however, if we keep going with the policies that we have been pursuing prior to President Trump, then the situation is going to get worse. And what's even more important is, if you take a look at these states, you have a growing presence of gangs like MS-13 coming into these places. Uh, West Virginia was particularly hard hit by the opioid crisis. The uh, organizations that are involved in illegally trafficking drugs, which mostly rely on illegal aliens to do the dirty work, are aware of this, so they're moving into those organizations. And if you are a terrorist organization like Al-Qaeda, things like mines, giant factories, oil and gas pipelines all become interesting targets from a terrorist standpoint because you can inflict maximum economic damage, but because the security presence, the number of police officers and so forth in those places is so low that you can get more bang for your buck as a terrorist. And those are all scary things that we need to take into account when we look at small states, um, rural areas, and states with low immigrant populations. Boy, I, you know, that, that is so true. We saw, I saw that uh, when I used to live in, uh, in uh, Charleston, West Virginia. I used to see, you know, all the oil companies and everything that, uh, or, the, or the refineries, rather, that they had in, uh, in South Charleston and how fat of a target those were, not, not to mention the ones when I lived in Houston. Never mind those, but... Uh, you know, the, it, it, it is, it is a, a, a very interesting aspect because folks don't focus on these, uh, on these issues when we're talking about illegal immigration. You're right. They, they're, they concentrate on what's happening in New York and, and California and in Texas. Well, I think you have to look at it in terms of uh, some of the post-9-11 groups that the uh, law enforcement infiltrated and arrested people. Yet in Lackawanna, New York, which, um, if you're familiar with upstate New York, is... Um, is uh, you know way up north in the cold zone. It's not a place where you would think of terrorists being, but those are the places where terrorists want to be when they set up cells, when they set up training camps. But but that's only one aspect. When you take a look at this overall, what the study we did shows is really that a lot of the very same problems that affect large areas that have big immigrant populations start to become evident even when there's only a small group of immigrants. In the study, we talk about Lewiston, Maine, which is, uh, I come from New England. I have family all over New Hampshire, Maine, and Massachusetts. Um, I went to law school in Maine, and Lewiston is a mill town, and in the 90s, during the economic downturn, the bottom fell out of the economy there, and it's been extremely tough for all of the local residents. For reasons that no one understands, the government began resettling refugees, mainly from Africa, in the area. Now, the school system there was already ranked like 74th or 75th or something like that in the state. It was at the low end of the spectrum. Well, all of a sudden, you had 30-plus language groups 
um, being spoken in the schools and virtually no ESL teachers. And this led to pretty much an all-out collapse of the school system. It just was not able to do what it was meant to do, which is educating people to be able to function in the economy and the society. These teachers were now faced with trying to deal with kids that spoke very little English, but 30 other foreign languages. And that meant that all of the U.S. citizen students who were already native English speakers were being held back by the school's need to educate people in other subjects, mainly language, before they could begin to teach them the standard curriculum. And that's not fair to the U.S. citizen students. Matt, tell the folks how they can follow FAIR and where they can read more about this, this situation and other, situa- uh, other problems with immigration. Sure. So our website is www.fairus.org. And uh, we have all of our studies that we put together on uh, that website. Uh, This study should be right on the front page and easily accessible. We also have a blog, which is at www.immigrationreform.com. And there's a whole lot of short commentary on all of these issues, which is on the blog, and that's updated virtually daily. I thank you, sir. We've been talking with Mr. Matt O'Brien from from FAIR, Federation for American Immigration Reform. Uh, Thank you very much for taking time to be with us, Matt. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you very much. George Rodriguez, El Conservador on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer in San Antonio. All right, folks, once again, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer. And uh, we've uh, got our very, very good friend, uh, Mr. Lou Olowski from uh, uh, D.C., the uh, uh, Institute for Immigration uh, Reform, law, uh, Legal Reform. And uh, we wanted to, I wanted to reach out to him because we've got uh, this uh, new uh, change in immigration law that's really causing some consternation, some angst with a lot of liberals. Uh, and a lot of uh, conservatives as well. It's causing a lot of folks to worry because the change has to do with immigrants that uh, become public charges. And so I wanted him to uh, explain to us what this change is and what is the history. Uh, Have we historically always taken in just the poor? Uh, And uh, does America in 2020 have the ability to absorb the world's poor? So, Lou, thank you for being with us. Thank you for coming uh, to to be on our show today. Tell us about this change. Sure. Thanks for uh, inviting us to talk about this issue. So, uh, we filed a a brief, we filed multiple briefs because this public charge rule has been challenged all across the country in in, in multiple courts. And our position is that we're defending what the administration is trying to do here because we think it is a sound, appropriate interpretation of of the law. And so the change that you're asking about, what is the change that President Trump is is instituting? Well, the change that President Trump is instituting is a clarification of what the law is for immigrants being financially independent. Uh, Congress has always had on the books a public charge rule, which in various forms says, if you're going to be dependent on the public, if you're going to be a charge upon the public, then you should not be uh, given admission to live in the United States. Instead, immigration priority should go to those immigrants who are economically self-sufficient. And Congress has used exactly that phrase, economic self-sufficiency, and Congress has stated many times what the policy of the United States should be, and, and, and Congress has, over the years, reiterated again and again and again that uh, people that are likely to become public charges are uh, excludable, right, or should not be admitted into the United States. Now, here's the change that President Trump instituted. This, is, this, is, this has been the rule. This is the, the law on the books in, in Congress's statute. The change, excuse me, is that President Trump instituted a formula that would help visa officers, immigration officers, calculate whether a person is a public charge. And the formula lists certain kinds of public benefits that should count as being um, essentially welfare payments, 
that you're taking that, that the government should consider when deciding whether you're actually a public charge versus what types of payments perhaps should not count, like maybe certain emergency services for um, for, for poor moms or, or children, something like that. Like there's some, there's some charity uh, in the rule. It's not a very draconian rule, but all it is is a clarification about how you're exactly supposed to implement Congress's law. The reason this got sued over is because ever since 1999, the president uh, has taken the position that only certain um, cash benefits will count, but non-cash benefits, even including food stamps, you can use those all you want, and we're never going to enforce the public charge rule against you. And that was an idea that Bill Clinton came up with in 1999. And then George W. Bush kept with it, and President Obama kept with it, uh, and Donald Trump decided to uh, go back to what Congress actually said instead of this uh, post-Clinton interpretation. Um, so, so, so it's a change, superficially, but it's a change away from not enforcing the law and a change in the direction of enforcing the law. But Congress made the law, and the law's been on the books for, for decades, and before we even had a Congress, um, in the 18th century, uh, the colonies had a very had very similar rules too. Namely, anybody that wanted to come into the colony uh, would not be included if they were, you know, a vagabond or or various phrasings that got at the idea that everyone in the colony needed to contribute in order for the colony to survive. So when we after the revolution, when we drafted a constitution, one of the first immigration laws that Congress ever passed was a reiteration of this exact idea. And, and the idea has gotten codified again and again and again in subsequent statutes. But in 1996, with the Welfare Reform Act, Congress um, gave a very strong uh, reaffirmation of this in the law, where Congress talked about having people sponsor uh, immigrants on, on visas so that so that an American citizen is financially responsible for you if you become dependent. And Congress gave this, like, ten-point policy position right in the statute on how it's trying to promote self-sufficiency and trying to avoid the problem of America being a magnet for the world's poor and so on. And then Bill Clinton's position was, um, if I recall correctly, the Welfare Reform Act passed over his veto. Maybe I'm not remembering that correctly. But in any case, President Clinton did not like the Welfare Reform Act, but he had to enforce it as president. So the balancing act that he came up with was he would enforce the public charge rule only in a very narrow way. Again, he would only enforce it with respect to immigrants that were taking direct cash benefits. But he wouldn't enforce it for housing vouchers or food stamps or uh, things like that. And that way he could throw, President Clinton could throw his uh, liberal supporters a bone by showing them that he did uh, less than uh, Congress would have expected him to do in the Welfare Reform Act. So that's why President Trump was being sued, because all these lawyers were saying that President Trump has to stick with the Clinton-Bush-Obama policy. He can't actually change the policy and do what Congress said. It, you know, it, it's kind of amazing that, um, you know, uh, that the idea that we cannot determine who enters and under what conditions would first be challenged. That's number one. But number two, that somehow we are supposed to take in all of the world's poor um, you know, I, I'm not sure how, how you know, e economically somebody can, can accept that uh, as, a, as a premise. It's, it's not possible, right? Like, we can, we can even set aside the debate on whether America should um, provide for all the world's poor, right? Let's, 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 not even, let's not even touch whether America should do that. The unalterable fact is that America can't do that. And America can't do that because even though we are the wealthiest, most economically vibrant, productive country in the world, we nonetheless, even at that level, aren't so uh, productive uh, that we can afford to finance all the world's poor. And even, even uh, presidential candidate uh, Bernie Sanders, who describes himself as a democratic socialist, even he has a record of acknowledging that a generous social safety net is not sustainable with, the, with, with just an open door toward all the world's poor. 
And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Milton Friedman, who was a radical libertarian, uh, he used to acknowledge the exact same thing, <laughs> that, that, um, that, that public policy would uh, require some kind of immigration controls if the government wanted to have a safety net for the simple reason that there is a, there's a finite amount of money on the table and there's an infinite amount of demand out there. So you have to make certain common sense decisions about who gets what benefits. And common sense decision number one is, well, first let's take care of citizens for the simple reason that the government is elected by citizens, the government works for citizens. Citizenship is the, 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 the ultimate vote, the literal vote. This is the community that the government is supposed to be protecting, is the community of citizens. And we have a very generous society with respect to the path towards citizenship. An immigrant, once he becomes a citizen, has all the exact same rights and privileges as a citizen whose family has been in this country for hundreds of years. Um, all we ask, though, and by we I mean Congress, because Congress wrote these statutes, is that um, people who are not citizens and are coming here should show that they're financially independent. You got it. Uh, let me ask you here in our closing moments, um, what do you think will, will happen with these challenges? Do you think that the president will prevail, uh, that reasoning will, uh, will win out, or do you think that uh, it's going to get caught up in, uh, in politics and uh, the, uh, the courts for a long while? Um, I think the president's position will ultimately prevail. And... I actually have some breaking news to share about this. Uh, last week, the Supreme Court decided on whether to permit this rule from getting enjoined, from being stopped. And the Supreme Court reversed the lower courts and said that the rule can proceed to be enforced. So as of today, the Trump administration, even though it's getting sued all across the country over this rule, has been expressly permitted by the Supreme Court to go back and continue enforcing it. Yeehaw. What's going to happen is these lower courts are now going to proceed to hearing uh, arguments and considering the evidence so that those lower courts can make a final decision on whether this, uh, whether this rule is, is, is lawful and whether President Trump can keep enforcing it. And then if they decide against the president, then the president can appeal, and then the Supreme Court will hear the case more completely. But in the meantime... What happened was these lawsuits had asked the courts to stop the rule temporarily until the court decides whether the rule can proceed. And the Supreme Court said, you can't stop the rule uh, temporarily in this kind of way. And in order for the Supreme Court to have reached that decision, it implies that the Supreme Court thought that the uh, rule had some, uh, had some merits to it, at least enough merits that it shouldn't be something that just gets uh, thwarted uh, at this early stage. Fantastic. Lou, thank you once again for taking time to, to educate us and to inform us about this. Uh, we've been talking, my friends, with uh, Mr. Lou Olowski from, uh, uh, from the Immigration Reform uh, Law Institute in Washington, D.C. Lou, tell the folks how they can read more from about you guys. Sure. If you visit our website, uh, www irli.org and that's Immigration Reform Law Institute IRLI or early sometimes we call ourselves early if you visit our website at early.org then you can see a bunch of links with these new developments and about this public charge rule in particular you can see our press release which includes a link to the brief that we submitted to the Supreme Court on this question about why the Supreme Court should allow the rule to proceed in the meantime uh, as the lower courts hear these lawsuits challenging the rule. Thank you very, very much. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador on KLUP 930 AM Radio, The Answer. Hello, El Conservador listeners. If you are interested in following George Rodriguez, El Conservador, we invite you to follow him at his internet website, elconservador.net. You can also follow him on Facebook at George Rodriguez El Conservador. 
and on Twitter at El Conservador for daily commentaries. You can also purchase his book, El Conservador, Conservative Opinions, online at Amazon.com. The book contains essays and commentaries about illegal immigration, fake news, and race relations. If you're interested in inviting El Conservador to speak to your group or event, please contact him through Facebook or through the station at 930amtheanswer.com. El Conservador thanks you for your support. Keep the fire of freedom burning. Once again, my friends, George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer. And uh, we have one of our uh, dear friends who's been on before, Mr. Sal Martinez. And Sal is a former DEA agent that uh, worked in Mexico. And we wanted to get uh, uh, Sal on the the, uh, show to talk a little bit about um, the current status of what he sees of what's going on with the... uh, with the cartels uh, on the Texas border. Uh, he uh, has written a book, and uh, Sal, tell, tell us about your book, and then tell us about uh, uh, what you think uh, about what's going on at the border right now. Thank you, George. Yeah, the book is titled Narc, Convictions of an Undercover Agent. Uh, it uh, lists uh, pretty much an autobiography of the times that I was working undercover uh, along the Mexican border. And then I started working in Monterrey, Mexico, uh, trying to combat the, uh, the cartels down there. And uh, again, it, even though it's not the traditional cartels uh, of the past, there's many factions that now have uh, actually made this very complicated along the border and throughout Mexico. It's uh, Unfortunately, this is going to be the, uh, I think Mexico ranks as the worst country uh, or the highest crime uh, in 2019. Yeah, what's the difference between uh, the uh, crime when you were there and the crime now do you, do, that you see? What can, what can you enlighten us about that? Let me give you an example. I was uh, working the Juarez cartel, and they had uh, uh, everything was pretty much like a chain of command. There was always a structure and uh, permission that was needed uh, for a certain movement of drugs or, or smuggling of, 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 of uh, immigrants. And, and they would have to get permission and, and authorization. Now it's got to the point where these uh, factions have gone out on their own and doing their own thing, which is causing a lot of turf wars and, and thus escalating violence. And and, uh, and again, I think the brutality and the violence is just uh, it's getting worse. And, and these groups, uh, George, what they're doing is that they're trying to become as brutal and gruesome as possible so they can get the public to pay attention to them and also it provides a, a fear factor for, for the public Yeah, the uh, interesting thing that you're that you're mentioning on this uh, this uh, ability for the uh, for organiza- organization, uh, I remember hearing that uh, reading that the uh, mafia was very very well organized and disciplined as compared to the gangs today. I guess it's similar, isn't it? It, it was, like I said. Well, it was then, like I said. Every time we would get information about somebody getting killed on the on the Mexican side or on on our side. We had an idea of what the, the situation was, and, and through our informants and, and through the information gathering, it was it was again something related to to the, the organization. Uh, somebody making a call and saying this person had to get whacked. But now, I mean, we're getting innocent uh, people killed. I mean, the example of the, the Mormon family that was the women and children that were killed there in the northern part of Mexico is this, this incident was highly publicized because of the victims being or having American citizenship. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, this is happening happening every day up there and uh, down there in Mexico, and, and and American people need to become aware of that. Uh, this is just it's not going to happen. This is not going to be just one incident. There's going to be multiple situations like this, and it's going to get worse. Now, uh, we, we, besides that, uh, that family, uh, there have also been uh, other situations where American citizens have uh, have perished uh, just south of the border, particularly at Christmas time. Uh, do you see this threat as becoming greater and greater for any Americans, uh, both on our side as well as Americans that are go visit to, to, to Mexico? Anybody going south of the border is, is taking their, their, their safety into, into risk uh, as a risk because they're just, uh, again, uh, the security factor has, has, has diminished. Uh, the uh, military and the police forces down there are, are 
uh, do not have any kind of organized uh, efforts. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the leaders uh, in those groups are, are are bought up by the cartels. So again, it's, it's literally chaos. And uh, again, I, I, I would recommend to people who, who actually go down there again are putting their lives in danger. Do you think? Do you think that the uh, that the Mexican military, because we've heard that the uh, we've heard the, the the Mexican president talk about uh, calling in the Marines, the Mexican Marines. Do you think that the Mexican Mexican military uh, can uh, stop or or uh, prevent uh, the violence from uh, escalating any further? The problem with that is, and I've seen it before. When I was working down there, DEA, we, we had some military. Uh, Groups helped us out with some operations, and within within months, uh, you could see that uh, the higher command had been told uh, other things to to uh, uh, to divert from helping the U.S. authorities out. They said, "Hey, stay away from the Gringos. Do what we tell you to do." And and the military are just like the law enforcement authorities out there. They they can be bought off, and, and within the military, even though they're using more manpower and more military strength, these cartels have just as much strength as the military, if not more. Yeah, it, we saw that when um, when they recently tried to arrest uh, the son of, of El Chapo uh, in Sinaloa, that uh, that they they backed off. That was ridiculous, and it it, it really put a, a black eye in the uh, uh, law enforcement authorities down there to to succumb to the uh, pressures of the cartels, and that was obvious of who's in control down there. So, what do you think? I mean, there's been a lot of debate about what to do to address this issue. Uh, of, of the cartels as they uh, gain power and violence. What do you think the United States needs to do? I think uh, domestically uh, we need to continue to do our interagency uh, uh, investigations. Uh, you know, we have uh, various federal agencies, state agencies, and local agencies. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, and I, 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 said, and I saw it firsthand, is where uh, you had one agency and uh, I won't say who they are, but they always seem to, to be, uh, take care of the, their investigations and not provide any intel to the other agencies. And, and what would happen is that we would not exchange information, so it would be frustrating when something would happen and, and uh, there was nothing there other than we knew there was more information available. But interagency cooperation is the key here uh, domestically. Uh, as for the other side, I really believe we need to hit them where it hurts. That will be the, you know, get, get into their pockets with the, uh, uh, we need to have a white collar mentality down there, George. We need to go after their assets. Yeah, I guess we we do. Uh, Al, is there anything else you'd like to uh, share with us and uh, and uh, chat with us? Well, you know that uh, I'm currently a bail bondsman, so I've been to that for the last eleven years, and and I see the effects of the cartels here in the San Antonio area. I mean, some of my clients have been murdered because of their involvement with the localized groups like the uh, Mexican mafia, and uh, a lot of those cartels. They have groups on this side that are operating uh, in direct contact on a daily basis with, uh, you know, like Juarez Cartel had a, a group in El Paso known as, uh, uh, there were former law enforcement officers, they were uh, La Linea, and I think uh, Ariano, Ariano Felix group in San Diego had the a group called the Logan Street Gang, and, and those guys are heavily armed, and, and again, I think it's going to get worse out here in Georgia, uh, unfortunately, uh, I think we need to go back to where the source is, and, and that it, it goes after the, uh, the Mexican government by putting pressure. I think President Trump threatening to impose tariffs on Mexico was a uh, was a great tactic. Get worked on uh, having manpower, their national guard, you know, stop the caravans from coming over. I think that was one good tactic. Um, the other things, again, I think we should start looking at ways to uh, go after the businesses that are affiliated with these cartels. There's a lot of money laundering out there, and <laughs> so. There's a way for us to go and, and, and go after those businesses or those groups that are laundering. I think that will be very effective. So do you think, uh, particularly here in South Texas, where we've got so many uh, Americans of Mexican descent, folks that, that look Mexican, uh, do you think that these, uh, that these cartels are making inroads within the prison ranks and within the gang ranks to, uh, to start influencing and buying and... and uh, and, uh, well, just, just influencing the crime in the area? Well, I, I think it's not, you know, race, color, creed. That really is not a, a factor in this thing. I think it's more of uh, uh, the availability of, 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 you know, working with these organizations, either through your through businesses or, or pressure. I mean, we've actually got the, a lot of these businessmen that have been extorted, 
and and it has to and affect some of the American businesses. So yeah, there'll be a lot of hurt feelings over here, George. Uh, if we start uh, going after some of these uh, uh, so-called legitimate businesses, because there's a lot of money being going going back and forth between the United States and Mexico. <laughs> how about that? Uh, tell tell folks how they can uh, where they can uh, purchase your book. I have it currently online on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble online. That's the only place I can do it at this point. Uh, I'm hoping to maybe get some national attention on this because uh, I really have, I do have a story to tell. Uh, and, and again, it's Narc Convictions of an Undercover Agent. Great. Thank you, thank you much, uh, Sal, for being with us. Uh, we've been talking with uh, former DEA agent uh, Sal Martinez, George Rodriguez on KLUP 930 AM radio, The Answer. Once again, folks, thank you very, very much for joining in and listening to our show. This has been George Rodriguez, El Conservador, talking to you on KLUP 930 AM radio. We are, my friends, a grassroots-supported uh, program and we need your support. We would love to have your uh, uh, sponsorship in some form or fashion. If you have a business that uh, wants to buy time on our program, uh, please let the station know. And um, we will figure something out. Uh, also, if you're interested in donating to uh, El Conservador, please also contact the station. And uh, we will let you know how, uh, where and how you can uh, support us. Um, at any rate, thank you very, very much for uh, joining us today. We hope that you will tell uh, your friends and neighbors about our program. We definitely uh, are going to be branching out uh, into YouTube and uh, into Spanish language, so we would very, very much like and need your support uh, in, these, uh, in these ventures. We um, feel that it's uh, critical that uh, our message, that our message get out and uh, be heard, uh, that uh, an American of Mexican descent be heard and seen as speaking for uh, an American first uh, message. We need, my friends, we desperately, desperately need to make sure that America stays strong uh, or we're going to lose it. We need to be sure that Texas stays the strongest state in the na in the nation and uh, we certainly need that support too my friends once again George Rodriguez El Conservador talking to you from San Antonio deep in the heart of South Texas thank you for being with us join us next week